ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, Selena Green with you today. Hopefully you're listening from somewhere dry and relatively calm. What's been uh, some wild times weather-wise across South Australia. Happy to get your weather reports. What's it been like where you are? Have you had much rain? Has it caused any damage? Let me know on my talkback number, 1300 222 or send me a text on 0467 922 In a moment, we'll check in with a few folks around South Australia and Broken Hill to find out how much rain they've had and whether or not it's been a help or a hindrance at this time of the year. Just a massive clap of thunder. And then it poured down, but with such a strong wind again and the water's running in the back door and down out through the bathroom. And didn't have the hail this morning like we had yesterday. A lot of hail. And while it hasn't had much of the wild extremes of other parts of the state, the southeast has received some of the highest rainfall figures over recent days. And southeast potato farmer Terry Buckley is just, we well, had just finished planting and now some of his crop is underwater. We've had some losses. I mean, it was very dry. It's been a been a difficult spring, but they all are because uh, it went so dry. It went from wet to absolutely dry. So we've had trouble trying to rot down the little bits of grass and stuff that come when you rotary hoe your soil. They normally would rot down and disappear. Now they're just sitting up there dry. So that'll be a bit of a challenge at harvest time. Uh, some of your sand tends to go to non-wetting sand, which gets difficult to irrigate. And then we've now had all this rain. We got up to 70 mils out here. And so we've drowned some potatoes. How much of the losses do you think? It's hard to know at this stage. Um, I thought we'd got pretty severe losses there for a little bit, but we've got to wait for another week and see what sort of looks like. It's always generally always worse than you think it is because it tends to wash the fines down in your soil and silt your soil up at the bottom then it doesn't breathe properly and the roots then don't go in there where they should go and it's it's usually a bit worse than you'd hope it was but um so a decent always, chunk of the crop you would expect might it might be drowned oh no it's only one or two percent probably. right okay but still it's only that but it's still significant because if you lose, you know, we grow 25,000 tonnes of spuds. If you lose, you know, two or 300 tonnes, 200 tonnes is $100,000. So, yeah, it's not insignificant. So um, I was hoping for 30 mils, and we got 70 in some places. So, And where we work out here at Sand Over Clay, look, a lot of people aren't having that issue because they don't have the clay underneath their sand. Would other potato growers here and, and maybe even Victoria be impacted or mostly just... Uh, no, if you, if you live like at Congarong or your summer Kalingadu can be a bit of a challenge but they generally get a bit less rain than us. But if you're out at Wattle Range or Robe or Congarong or Narracourt, most of that doesn't have clay under it and so the water just goes through and say, so, well, that was a good rain and off you go. So it's not everywhere that's affected. But this does grow good spuds when it's growing its spuds. I normally hear you know, good potatoes here, but but you just got to allow for risks like that every now and again. And are you worried there might be another wet weather event to come this season? 
it's always a worry. I mean, uh, somebody was on the radio yesterday and confirmed what I thought had happened in my lifetime. I think the weather pattern has moved down about 200 kilometres. They were talking 400 to 600 the other day. So it's just moved south. So we're now getting the weather that used to be up at Keith when I was a kid. But then the tropics has come down a bit further and then you get more of these bits that sort of spin off the bottom of the tropics and can come through. And that's what they're predicting as far as uh, climate change goes, that you'll get more unseasonal rains. So what we've just had is something that they're suggesting we need to learn to expect more often. And I think I might change my potato rows from where I've got them. I've got them very flat at the minute. Get them back up into some hills to get them up out of the water a bit better. And generally, how are other growers going, Terry? Do you know that there's no risk of another chip or potato shortage this season? Not that I'm aware of. The, the one that happened last time was a result of the very wet spring, which we haven't had this time. So everybody's got planting. So in Tasmania, they were so late getting their spuds planted that Russet Burbanks, they didn't even bother to plant them in the end because they didn't have enough time for them to finish. So they didn't plant enough spuds. And then they got a massive rain in January, hailstorms and, and rain in Ballarat. And that ripped down through and damaged a lot of crops. So... Between those two events, that's what happened. That's what caused the last time. And also, they were in trouble in the Northern Hemisphere that there wasn't potatoes up there to import to replace what we didn't have. That so was a worldwide problem. So they're all in. Everyone's getting their buds in like they should be. So mm-hmm. I'm not expecting this to lead up to anything. Right. Idea. So not not good for the growers like yourself who've been impacted directly, but for the consumers, there should still be plenty of potatoes to go around this year. It's not posing a serious risk at this time. In fact, a lot of the earlier crops uh, will be favoured by a mild spring, but we haven't had any nasty hot weather. It's been beautiful potato growing for people that have got their potatoes up. You know, it's growing up towards the mallee and that sort of thing. They will have had a wonderful season so far. There's a bit of issue around with seed problems this year because the spring was the, the autumn was so wet the, the only other issue is happening is there's been losses in stores but obviously it seems like we're going to get through to january all right but been considerable losses in storage sheds from the wet autumn we had where you're digging wet potatoes and uh you know they've finished up having to dump quite a bit of product that's rotted and not been suitable to process so we're going to get through i believe but you know not by much that is Kalangadu potato farmer Terry Buckley, and he was speaking there with Elsie Adamo. Well, record rainfalls across the state and Broken Hill causing havoc for some farmers, especially halting some headers mid-harvest. But for others, it has helped crops flourish. Peter Hoffman in Udunda diversified into growing native food alongside cereal crops a few years ago, and he told Eliza Berlage it's been good to get some rain. Well, it has been very, very dry, and it hasn't uh, helped the cereal crops to, at all to uh, develop. But my share farmer has um, able to harvest all the wheat before the big rain. We've had 36 mils, which is quite a lot, and uh, which is good for my native food for uh, the Acacia Victoria wattle seeds and the uh, um, Krongdongs. And so it's, uh, it is good to get some rain. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. You've got a, a mix of all the different worlds there, Peter. So the the native uh, f- uh, foods really have enjoyed the rain. Yes, very much so. The the wattles have just finished flowering, 
So that should help the seed set on them. So uh, looking forward to a crop of them. And how long have you uh, been uh, doing the native foods for? Oh, a bit too long. We've been mucking around for this native food for 20 years and it's finally paying off the, yes, it's the wattle seed. I can get 90 bucks a kilo for the seed and the, the, wattle, the salt bush, I dry that and I can get good money for that as well. And uh, yeah, I've heard, uh, yeah, just that quite a bit of rain, especially over your way. Have you seen much flooding around? You know, you know, what would you be doing if you had to what? worry about being haven't the tractor? Haven't ventured too far, but the creek next to our place is running, so that usually takes a fair bit of water for that to run. So. As he'd under native foods grower Peter Hoffman, and he was speaking there to Eliza Berlage, 13 minutes past 12. And as I've said, while the rain is not great for some parts of South Australia, there is cause for celebration as the rains have continued across the outback where it's very much needed. Graziers in parts of far west New South Wales and northeast South Australia have seen some significant rain and some hail over the past few days. We are we are a station 120 kilometres southwest of Broken Hill. Jenny Trelaw says it was a welcome downpour, albeit disrupting some plans. Just as we were about to start crutching yesterday and had the sheep full of yards, of the yards full of sheep, um, which we had to let out, of course, it was a wonderful rain, but it was, oh, did a lot of damage, I would think. How much rain have you had over the last the last 24 hours? We had 25.6 in the rain gauge, but the way of the, the wind, it was such a strong wind that it would have been double that. And then we've had another similar 6.6 this morning. And what did it look like when it was coming in? Could you see the clouds, you know, coming over your property? Oh, no, you can't. couldn't see anything, actually. It was just a massive clap of thunder. And then it poured down, but with such a strong wind again and the water's running in the back door and down out through the bathroom. And, did yeah, you quickly have it. to sort of close up everything and prepare? Like it was quite a quick rains that came in? Yes, but... Uh, Unfortunately, we couldn't close it up because our screen doors out from the back porch it just comes straight through. It was, the wind is so strong, that's the real problem. It's just blowing the rain sideways. We didn't have the hail this morning like we had yesterday. A lot of hail. How long did the hail last and, and what sort of damage did it cause? It lasted, oh, half an hour, I suppose. Well, perhaps 20, 20 minutes. So half an hour, yes, and we got that rain. But as I said, it was just blowing sideways, so you couldn't take any notice, really, of what was in the rain gauge. Any damage to, to your property or vehicles or anything? No, no, not really. The, the men, fortunately, had just got into the shed here when, when it hit, so they had their vehicles in, in the shed. They just couldn't move from the shed, that was all. So it didn't do any damage, but it did break down a, a lot of... Uh, the tops of the trees, of the big gum trees and so on. There's a lot of those branches that were broken off too. Okay, and was that quite close to your house? Yes, around the house. We've got a creek that runs alongside of the house here and, and that's running again this morning from the rain that we've had this morning. It ran for a while yesterday too after that rain and it's running again this morning, the boys have said. You know, there's still crowds around and you never know what's going to happen actually. So it could build up again. So we might be in for even more. It's very hard to tell. Jenny, how long since that creek's been running? Oh, it hasn't run for oh, 18 months, I suppose. How's everything looking out on the property? It's been pretty good, but it's been drying off. 
you know, it has been drying off this last 12 months. But uh, with the rainfalls that we've had before, it was looking really good. No, this is very welcome. It's very welcome for the feed. So are you expecting a little bit more rain? How's it looking over there? Well, there are clouds, thunder clouds around and this kind of weather, you never know. Are you hoping for a bit more? Me in particular, no. I'm sweeping water out of the back, back porch all the time. Okay, so it's going to be a bit of a clean-up today? Yes, like it was yesterday, and I'm into it again this morning. So, uh, yes, so instead of doing the crutching, I'm um, cooking for the men for crutching. I'm busy cleaning up all the time. We were due to start this morning, actually. We had the sheep all in the yards, and the crutching team were arriving last night, but they couldn't get in, and uh, we had to let the sheep out. So now we're going to put it off until next week and we'll try again then. How are the dams looking around and closer to your house? The, the boys just puddled over to the uh, dam and our dam is filling up. It's nearly full actually. It's over all practically overflowing, which is such a thrill because they just set up the desal plant yesterday to start pumping all water through. And how long since you've seen, seen the dam full? Well, it'll be 18 months, two years, I suppose, since it was full. Will it set you up for a while? No, it'll set us up for the next 12 months without any, any more wonderful news. That is Jenny Trelaw. She is from Wira, Wira Wira Station, and she was speaking there to Lily McEwa. 18 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, this year's Global Climate Summit will launch in the United Arab Emirates on Thursday and agriculture, as we've heard, will be under the microscope like never before. Around 17% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture and that share is set to grow as other high-emitting industries decarbonise. Over the next few weeks, world leaders will be discussing how countries can reduce the environmental impact of food production. Fiona Broom has this report. From the initial flood a month ago, we think that there's been at least 10,000 cattle lost. Pasture paddocks and stubble paddocks were all burned out. About six kilometres from the river. I mean, we're not on the riverbank. Here we are in water again. We sort of estimate the area impacted by the weather we've seen would probably account for around 20 million tonnes. Increasingly extreme weather is disrupting global food security. While total agricultural output has increased in the past 50 years, climate change is slowing this growth worldwide. That's according to the IPCC, the world's peak climate science advisory panel. While agriculture is deeply affected by climate change, it's also a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. But is it possible to cut emissions from agriculture? Farmers say they're looking to technology to help. Absolutely, technology is a big part of the solution and a lot of farmers are at the leading edge of new technology. It's always been the way Australian agriculture is incredibly innovative. That's Natalie Collard from Farmers for Climate Action. She says Australia's food and fibre producers are keen to find new ways to reduce agricultural emissions, working with researchers like Professor Richard Eckard from the University of Melbourne. We're coming up with innovative solutions. We've got a plan in front of government basically to drop 50% of the emissions out of the cropping industries overnight if they really wanted to achieve that. Uh, it just requires a partnership with the fertiliser industry to coat all our fertiliser. 
that's beyond research. That's something that can happen tomorrow if we if there was a political will to make it happen. On the other hand, we're doing lots of research on livestock methane, supplements we can feed now, new legume technologies, breeding animals for lower methane. While farmers say they're committed to cutting their emissions, they also say there's no silver bullet when it comes to areas of food production like methane emissions from livestock. Here's National Farmers Federation President David Johinke. Food is one of the most essential things to life. We want to make sure that we can still produce food in a sustainable way, but we're not going to cut our arms off in doing so. There are a lot of technologies and techniques out there that have been adopted already, and we want to have recognition for that. We also want to acknowledge that there is a limited amount that we can do. I always believe if we talk about net zero or not expelling methane, these these things are near impossible when we have animals have ruminants. We, We can't get away from that fact, and We can reduce our impact, but we can never really get down to that zero position. Dr Jared Greenville from Australia's federal agriculture research body, ABES, says technology is one option for decarbonising food production, but agrees there's only so far it can go. It's quite likely that we won't ever be producing cattle which don't produce any methane. We might have good technologies that can help lower that amount, but at this stage with our technology doesn't seem to be the case. The IPCC has said the world needs to cut back meat and dairy production to reduce emissions. So should Australia change what it eats and exports? Tammy Jonas is a pig farmer and butcher. She's also the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, which wants to see changes to industrial food systems. Animals are a really healthy part of an ecosystem when there aren't too many of them being produced for too high a consumption load. One of our farm's uh, mottos is, is follows the slow meat mantra of eat better, meat less. And we know that places like Australia and America and the UK, we eat you know, huge amounts of meat beyond what most of the world actually eats. So if we brought the protein consumption from livestock back into balance with the ecosystem's capacity to support those animals, then we think that's the right amount. And that's how much meat I guess we try to produce is something that's in balance with our ecosystem and in balance with our population's need for healthy and nutritious meat in their diets. Professor Richard Eckard says the scientific possibilities for sustainable agriculture haven't yet been exhausted. I'm a big believer in technology. Before we sort of go down the track of sort of radical change to diets, I I believe we, we haven't really given technology its full extent. The, the ruin of an animal took 50 million years to evolve to a steady state, and we decided 20 years ago this was a problem, we needed to change it, and we've been throwing three-year drip-funding research projects at it. Uh, we, we haven't seriously given it the research that it deserves to reverse 50 million years of evolution. If in 10 years' time of giving it you know, 10 years of concentrated funding, we still can't eliminate the methane from, say, the extensive cattle industry, well then... We have to think again, you know, does society accept that and accept that maybe biodiversity that they manage is uh, more important to us than the methane? Or do we change altogether? If you have a 50 million year old problem and you throw three year funding rotations at it, you're really not being serious about technology solutions. As Professor Richard Eckhart ending that report from Fiona Broom, all this week on ABC Rural, we'll be looking at how agriculture is affected by and contributes to climate change in the run-up to the COP28's launch in the UAE on Thursday. 24 minutes past 12, you're with Selena Green. Simon Timkey is our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. Hi, Simon. 
G'day, Selena. Well, where do you start with a system like this that's just rolled through today? Wow. <laughs> well, yeah, it's certainly been a been a pretty uh, busy twenty four hours on the on the weather front. We've seen fairly frequent uh, thunderstorms and showers over. Uh, central and eastern parts of the agricultural area, I guess, is a good way to describe it, and adjacent parts of the Flinders and northeast pastoral districts. Uh, over the uh, the Adelaide area, York Peninsula, Mid North, there are very frequent thunderstorms through the overnight period, and they extended over the the Riverland, Murray Lands, uh, and the far south of the northeast pastoral district. And over those more eastern district, those thunderstorms continue to be fairly frequent. Um, we have seen a, a number of severe thunderstorms with um, uh, very heavy to intense rainfall that's occurred. Uh, the, the wettest spot that we've recorded across the state was at uh, Scots, Scotch College in Mitcham. Uh, had 75 millimetres and 46 of that fell in one hour. So some wow. very intense rainfall out of some of those, uh, some of those thunderstorms and Certainly with the, the intensity of that rainfall, we have seen um, numerous uh, uh, areas where there's been uh, some significant uh, flash flooding around the place. Some of those storms have also had a little bit of hail. Obviously, we had quite uh, some significant hail uh, yesterday. I saw some photos from uh, Melrose with some uh, uh, quite a lot of hail and some large hail up that way yesterday. Uh, most of the hail I've seen on the radar today hasn't been as big as that, but certainly potential for some of those storms to contain large hail as, uh, as well as you know, uh, larger amounts of hail. Uh, some of the storms could produce some gusty winds as well. So with those severe storms, I think the most significant thing is likely to be the heavy rainfall, but, but damaging wind gusts, large hail are, are, are possible as well. Uh, so we do con continue to run a severe thunderstorm warning which the, the latest uh, edition of uh, contains the Mount Lofty Ranges and Adelaide, parts of the Mid-North and Murray Lands districts, uh, the Riverland and the far south of the northeast pastoral district. So if you are in those areas, um, do take a bit of extra care because there are severe thunderstorms w around and they are gradually contracting eastwards. So the, the risk is gradually decreasing over the western parts of that area, so do keep up to date with the latest warnings on our uh, on our website today. Um, elsewhere, further west and, and north, uh, still some isolated showers further further to the west, but over the north, plenty of clear skies uh, today. Bit of high cloud over the far north, but uh, but certainly dry conditions uh, further north across the state. Uh, and gradually today, we'll see the, that weather contract eastwards. Uh, I think thunderstorms will probably be contracted, uh, confined to the eastern districts by this afternoon uh, and then gradually clear to over the eastern states through the early hours of, uh, of um, tomorrow morning. Uh, and then during tomorrow, we'll start to see uh, a little bit more weather develop in the west. I think on Wednesday, we'll see uh, some isolated showers and thunderstorms develop over the, the northwest and the far west of the state. Still the odd isolated light shower about the southern agricultural area, but not any significant rainfall totals left in that. Uh, and then on Thursday and Friday, that weather gradually moving across the north. So we'll see isolated showers and thunderstorms about the north and west on Thursday, uh, and then gradually clear to the east during, uh, during Friday. So a bit of weather to come still across the north and west, um, and with thunderstorms still a bit of potential to see some, some rainfall totals out of those storms. Uh, further south, just a little bit of isolated uh, shower activity near southern and western coasts at times. Uh, and then over the weekend and early next week, 
really um, not much left, mostly dry conditions right across the state uh, Saturday through to Tuesday. Uh, rainfall totals for the period from around now out to midnight Saturday, generally the order of 1 to 5 millimetres, but increasing to 5 to 20 millimetres about and east of the Flinders and Mount Lofty ranges and also about the far west and far north with, uh, with that next lot of weather um, moving across through the middle part of the week. Local falls of 20 to 40 millimetres are possible over those areas as well. Uh, and if there is a, a, a heavier, more intense thunderstorm, possibly some uh, isolated falls of 40 to 60 millimetres. So uh, a little bit of weather to go today, mm. but uh, clearing or at least uh, clearing from the southeast quarter of the state after that with a little bit of weather to come across the north and west, Selena. Thank you, Simon. Simon Chimke there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland parts of New South Wales for tomorrow, for the upper western district, mostly sunny, with slight chance of a shower in the southeast in the early morning, chance of a thunderstorm in the east in the morning and afternoon. For the lower western district, partly cloudy, high chance of showers in the south, medium chance elsewhere with a chance of a thunderstorm. Both districts will have southwesterly winds around 25 to 40 k's an hour, overnight temps between 15 and 18, daytime temperatures in the mid 20s to around 30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. Hope you're dry. And out of this weather today, I'm here to keep you some company for the next half an hour. In that time, you'll hear about how wine drinking habits are changing rapidly across the world. Maybe you've changed yours as well. And what all that means for South Australian producers, some of whom are facing a glut of wine supply. And did you know that we have thousands of native bee species in Australia, but there's still so much we don't know about them. Some of them don't even have names yet. For a pretty wealthy country, we really should know a lot more about our important pollinators than we do. In Australia, we have about 16 or 1,700 species named, and then estimates are somewhere between two and 3,000 species, so like another 1,000 species remain to be named. I'll have a bit of a weather wrap for you in just a sec, but first, Matt Coleman will bring you up to speed with the news. Hi, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, thousands of people across South Australia have lost power as thunderstorms and heavy rain hit the state overnight and this morning. Severe weather warnings remain in place with thunderstorms expected to affect areas including Mount Barker, Callington and Parowa on the Fleurier Peninsula. Authorities are warning that heavy rainfall may lead to flash flooding. The severe weather also caused more than 12 flights out of Adelaide to be delayed, including flights to Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, Olympic Dam and Denpasar. Hundreds of passengers were stuck on the tarmac in planes that had arrived at the Adelaide airport this morning. The interruption is expected to cause ongoing delays for some flights into and out of Adelaide. The heavy rains also caused flooding across several Adelaide suburbs, with 45 millimetres falling in an hour at Brownhill Creek in Adelaide southeast. Floodwater caused the River Torrens to rise significantly, dislodging the famous blue whale at the brewery Christmas display, sending it floating several hundred metres down the river. More news at one o'clock. Oh, thank you, Matt. Yes, I did see an image of the uh, the blue whale the Torrens on social media. Still smiling, just not exactly where it was 
uh, yesterday. Unfortunately, hopefully it can be retrieved. Now, to just give you a bit of an update on what is happening with the weather across South Australia and the Bureau of Meteorology has just recently put out a bit of an update on what the weather situation is. So uh, as far as the severe thunderstorm warning for the Adelaide region, and that includes people in the Barossa, Mount Barker and Western Alexandrina council areas, uh, the good news there is that the Bureau says the immediate threat has eased of those severe thunderstorms. Uh, They have temporarily eased. However, they do say the redevelopment of severe thunderstorms remains possible. So that situation is being closely monitored and further detailed warnings will be issued as necessary. So moderate rain continues over areas previously impacted by heavy thunderstorms, so that may locally extend the effects of flash flooding. So Scott's, uh, Scott College, Scotch College, I should say, uh, recorded 45.8 millimetres in the one hour to 7am this morning. Uh, Bel Air recorded 44.2 mils in the three hours to just before 9am and Bellevue Heights uh, got 46.6 mils as well in the three hours up to uh, almost nine o'clock this morning. So just a reminder that the State Emergency Service does uh, advise you to keep clear of any fallen power lines you may come across. Uh, beware of any fallen trees or debris on the road. And of course, if you come across any flood water, don't drive, ride or walk through it uh, and keep clear of creeks and storm drains. There might be quite a fair bit uh, flushing through those systems now. Now, a more general severe thunderstorm warning is also current for the Adelaide Metropolitan, Mount Lofty Ranges, Riverland, Murraylands and parts of the Mid-North, Upper Southeast and Northeast Pastoral Districts as well. So uh, the severe thunderstorms are continuing throughout those districts. Please be aware of that. Uh, as far as power outages go, the latest update we've seen is that there are quite a few customers in Adelaide and regional South Australia still without power. Last check, 58 outages, uh, according to SA Power Networks, at 6,292 customers without power at the moment. Uh, their crews say they're continuing to make progress restoring power as the thunderstorm activity moves east across the state. The State Emergency Service has also uh, just a short time ago done a bit of an update uh, saying that, uh, yes, quite intense rainfall between 6 and 9am this morning. They had 250 requests for help for the SES. Uh, They've had crews out working through and they've thanked the public for your patience. Uh, They've also had some CFS volunteers and MFS staff also out helping uh, the SES attend to those calls. So the weather has moved past Adelaide, but there could be some more wind later this afternoon. Uh, they are monitoring those conditions through the Riverland and Murraylands as well. Now, if you do need storm assistance, the number is 132500 and the SES does have some sandbags available if you do need them and probably the easiest way to find your nearest location to access those is to check the SES website. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. Suddenly, a man who actually hadn't spoken for 14 years, out of the silence, he said... Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. In your ears, you hear this Australia, and it's like... Oh, God. There's a couple of hundred million people about to watch you. Hear the latest conversations. Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. You're with Selena Green and it is 24 minutes to one. Now, are you drinking less alcohol than you used to? As people's drinking habits have had a major shift globally in recent years and that's had some big implications for those producing wine and spirits. Are those changing consumer habits already having a pretty big impact on wine stocks, including here in Australia? 
compounded by trade issues and changing guidelines and health warnings. Well, Felicity Carter, she's an Australian wine journalist, but she works across Europe from her base in Germany. And she's back in Australia to deliver a keynote speech at this week's Wine Industry Impact Conference in Adelaide, where she spoke to me earlier about the top global wine trends. There's a trend towards gastronomy and wine tourism, which is very positive. That's been uh, accelerating for the last 10 years, and there's something that Australia is very well placed to take advantage of. The biggest changes, though, that have happened uh, are in two areas. One is that uh, people are changing the way that they drink. They're moving out of silos. So people used to be wine drinkers or beer drinkers, and they'd move a little bit into other categories. But what's happening is a complete collapse of categories. So people uh, are now um, drinking soft drinks at dinner or drinking a lot more uh, no and low alcohol than they did in the past. But I think the most significant change that's happened in wine has happened very, very rapidly, and it's the changing guidelines around alcohol that the World Health Organization has come out with. So in the last couple of years, um, the, the guidelines have changed in Europe and in Canada and particularly in Ireland, um, and they've said that there's no safe level of alcohol, um, and this is having enormous impact. So, so people are moderating their drinking um, quite rapidly. So there's already been, I guess, well, there are already signs of that having impact on the amount of wine that people are drinking in those countries? Absolutely. Um, Gallup uh, did a poll earlier this year in the United States and uh, the number of, of young people who say that they never drink because of health reasons has risen hugely. So particularly people under the age of 30, uh, are not. Uh, many of them are not drinking at all. Uh, and that's something that we haven't seen in the past. What about Australia? We're we still catching up a little bit on that that advice. But it, it, it is something that is inevitably going to have a bigger impact here for producers. Yes, it's it's, it's absolutely huge. Um, I, I have to emphasise though that this is a very contested area. So um, there are many many people who think the World Health Organisation has set the limit too low and that, that it's not supported by scientific and medical evidence. Um, nevertheless, governments worried about ageing populations have adopted this uh, no safe level mantra because it's just easier than talking about some of the complexities of alcohol and health. Um, and we can already see the impact on drinking. It's been very dramatic internationally. What does this then mean for producers going forward, for people who want to say, well, I'd like to continue making wine, but if there's going to be less people drinking it, um, you know, what, what's the way forward? So there's, there's really two things. One is to focus on uh, making better quality products. It's very clear that people still want to drink, but they're drinking less and they're spending more money when they do drink, so they want better quality products. I think anybody who's in the business of, of cheap alcohol um, is probably going to have a very difficult time um, in the days ahead. Um, and the second thing is that a lot of producers are rapidly moving into producing non-alcoholic products. There's a huge rise in people embracing non-alcoholic wines. There's all sorts of stores which are popping up overseas. There's one called Nix and Nix in Holland. There's one called Boisson in the United States. There's Club Soda in Britain. Um, and all of these people sell non-alcoholic drinks and they're all reporting that the, the favourite product of, of customers is non-alcoholic wine. Well, wow, because I, I mean, I have noticed here in Australia, I think a lot of consumers would a lot of this more popping up on supermarket shelves and a lot of bottlers these days or liquor stores have, uh, you know, a growing section of non-alcoholic or low-alcoholic wines. Are we, again, playing a bit of catch-up here in Australia where other countries maybe have, you know, a bit more advanced in developing some of these still good-tasting but low-alcoholic wines? Yeah, I, I do want to emphasise that this has happened very rapidly. This change has happened within the last 18 months and it's accelerating, so nobody is really on top of it. It's, it's caught people by surprise 
Um, no, nobody expected such a rapid social shift. And, and I imagine for that that is hard then to suddenly turn around and, and start making these products, um, you know, just on the hop. This is not something that, uh, you know, as I guess as a winemaker, you can, you can do very suddenly. Well, actually, you, you can. I was, in, um, I was in Amsterdam last week at a, at a wine fair and there's huge excitement around this category because, you know, wine's very traditional and it's not been a place where there's been a lot of innovation. And, and it's not really been a place where you can get a lot of competitive advantage because everybody makes very good quality wine. Um, and suddenly people are really, really excited by the possibilities of making very innovative new products. So um, one of the things that's happening is we're going back to um, a very sort of ancient technique of recipe-based winemaking where you can make wine and then you can add things to it. You can add fruit juices, you can add herbs, you can add all sorts of things. So that's actually a really exciting thing. It's unleashing a lot of creativity. And as you say, some of the other trends around wine tourism and people looking who still want to drink alcoholic wines are looking for those more sort of premium uh, quality offerings. That is something, thankfully, we do a lot of uh, here in South Australia and Australia as a whole. Yeah, and I think Australia is actually um, exceptionally well placed to take advantage of the trends. One, um, it's a great place for wine tourism. I mean, it's unbelievably friendly. It's been four years since I've been in Australia and I'm just I'm blown away by how much friendlier people are here than, than in many other places. So that's really attractive. Um, we've got a good story to tell with nature and with wildlife that people are really, really interested in. Um, and Australia is one of the most innovative countries in the world, particularly when it comes to wine. So I think Australia is hugely well-placed um, to take advantage of some of these trends. Yeah, and you can still tell those stories and have that experience, whether or not there is alcohol in the wine or not. Well, that's right. But one of the, one of the interesting things that research is coming out of Britain is that people who uh, buy non-alcoholic products also drink alcohol. So when they, they go out, like if you're going to um, have a night out and you want to clear your head for the next day or something, instead of drinking a half bottle of wine, people might have a glass of wine. But they're spending much more money on that single glass of wine because they want a better product because it's the only alcohol they're going to have that night. That is Business of Drinks co-founder Felicity Carter, and she's speaking at the Wine Industry Impact Conference, which is being held in Adelaide today. Uh, it's being held by the Wine Industry Suppliers Association. Now, just a further update again from the Bureau that has just come in place, and that is uh, some good news for those of you in the Adelaide region, Barossa, Mount Barker and Western Alexandrina Council areas. The Bureau has cancelled the severe thunderstorm warning for those areas. They're saying uh, those severe thunderstorms are no longer affecting the Adelaide region. Uh, and the immediate threat of severe thunderstorms has passed, but the situation will continue to be monitored, and if necessary, there will be further warnings issued. There continues, though, to be a severe thunderstorm warning for heavy rainfall, damaging winds and large hailstones, and that's for people in Riverland, parts of the Mount Lofty Ranges, Flinders, Mid-North, Murraylands and northeast Pastoral Districts. So severe thunderstorms are forecast to continue while contracting eastward this afternoon. So just be aware of that one. That still remains in place. Uh, There may be some severe thunderstorms and heavy rainfall, damaging winds, large hailstones in those areas over the next several hours, including areas like Redmark, Murray Bridge, Jamestown, Karoonda, Burra and Peterborough as well. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, did you know that 75% of an almond fruit isn't eaten? 
That is a lot of waste. And to combat that waste, South Australian researchers have teamed up with one of Australia's biggest almond growers to turn inedible hulls and shells into a nutrient-rich compost. A team from the South Australian Research and Development Institute worked with Select Harvest on the trial, with the company finding increased soil carbon and significant cost savings by reducing the need for chemical fertilisers. Select Harvest Senior Technical Officer Upul Gunawara, Gundundun, sorry, told Eliza Berlage about the project at Robinvale. So uh, Select Harvest, uh, we have a composting project, registered compost project, uh, fully licensed compost project uh, at Robinvale. And uh, we are manufacturing uh, 45 to 50,000 tonnes of uh, compost material. So the speciality about this uh, almond waste composting thing is, if you know what is almond is, the 75% of almond fruit is waste which is called almond hull. It's only 25% is actually uh, the edible portion. And this almond uh, waste material, quite significant in a company like Select Harvest, in a year we get about 150,000 tonnes of this almond waste material. And this uh, waste material has quite a high, rich in uh, uh, nutrient. Uh, so I, I was thinking how to convert this one into a kind of a fertiliser. So that's where that this idea came and... Uh, and, and uh, work out these composting procedures and uh, convert into a compost which we can use back in the, in, in the orchards. And we have successfully done that one. And since then, uh, every year we are uh, saving 30%, 30% of our synthetic chemical fertilizers every year, which is quite significant in terms of uh, um, value base and uh, and. Uh, so because most of the fertilizers are importing uh, from from China or places like that and and so 30% reduction in terms of uh, emission point of view carbon emission point of view that is quite a significant reduction and the cost wisely so it is a quite a sustainable project sustainable in terms of environmentally sustainable as well as the financially sustainable too so that's a good thing about that one. Do you know what Select Harvest was doing um, with the hulls, uh, with the parts of the almond that wasn't being used for food before this project? Before that one, it was using uh, mainly in uh, feed as a feedstock material. But that again, depending on the in the the weather of that particular year, if it is a dry year, that feedstock has a quite a good demand but if it is a rainy year like last year last two years it doesn't have a, that much demand so that is accumulating and it is actually increasing quite a high uh, fire risk as well in our processing plant so we had to work on various uh, different strategies to use this waste material sustainably and so how do you transform the hulls into this compost we have the composting uh, methodology, so that is actually uh, the method is uh, using uh, the waste uh, aeration process and uh, that process, it is a microbial digestion, converting this waste material and it takes about five to six weeks breaking down of this waste material into usable uh, kind of, you know, the material. So we're doing successfully and, uh, and, and uh, making uh, significant savings to the company as well. And as well as uh, savings in terms of you know, the, the carbon emission. And now we started actually working on how this method is sequestering the carbon, soil carbon in, in that one. And we are working on how to improve the soil carbon and see whether we can get the benefits of that soil carbon.
Do you know when you might be getting any results from carbon testing of soil or carbon sequestration? Yeah, we, we started actually collecting the carbon data, so we're working on that one. So uh, we haven't registered any projects yet, but uh, that, that is something we are working actively at the moment. So I think uh, every year we are making improvements and we have started observing the building up of the soil structure, healthy soil, soil microbial content, all that one we have started noticing. We haven't seen any significant yield improvement yet, but that's something, you know, now we are working on that one, uh, how, to, how to improve the soil, uh, uh, the, the yield improvements. And we're standing in the orchards, uh, the ace orchards now in Loxton. You know, if I was looking at this um, almond husk uh, compost, what might it look like if it was applied to an orchard like this? That's a good question that you asked, actually. I forgot to explain that one. We actually have developed even application method as well. So in general, compost application is a surface application. But because of this, almond has uh, various operational activities like mechanized harvesting. Then in between, uh, we have this called hygiene practice, which needs to be sweep the orchard floor number of times every year. So we cannot do this uh, normal traditional compost application method. Therefore, we have developed a specialized equipment which can inject this compost subsoil into the soil. So it is going to be into the apply application into the soil and then you cannot see anything outside after the application. And, and it is applying just along the, this, uh, the irrigation dripper zone. So therefore, uh, it can easily absorb into the root system as well. So therefore, that our uh, nutritional substitution work, work very if efficiently. Yeah, and I guess you don't have to worry about it, you know, blowing off or being moved off. So how would it be injected? So I'm looking at, you know, sort of this mound here. So just about yeah. 30 centimetres outside the dripper line, you know, and it is going to be subsoil, about 10 centimetres below the surface. Yeah, and what sort of machine or how, how is it We have developed in? a new machine which is uh, injecting into that one. Yeah. And so how deep did you say it goes? About 10 centimetres. At Select Harvest Senior Technical Officer Upul Gunawardena speaking there with Eliza Berlage. It is 10 minutes to one. Well, experts will tell you there's a lot we don't know about Australia's native bees, with only two-thirds of the around 3,000 native species even named. So it may be surprising that finding work to study and catalogue our native bees is a tough slog for those in the industries. Adjunct lecturer at Flinders University, Dr James Dory, is an Australian native bee expert. He's about to make the move to America for his career, saying there's just no funding in Australia to support native bee research. So in terms of the world context, we are, I don't know, decades or centuries behind the United States, but the US is ahead of the rest of the world. But even compared to much of North America and Europe and, and some other places, we really don't know that much about our bee fauna. We're ahead, of course, of some other places that just don't receive the same amount of research funding overall, um, you know, like Asia and Africa and those places are amazing and full of really cool bees. But, you know, for a pretty wealthy country, we, we really should know a lot more about our important pollinators than we do. Yes, when you say we're decades or centuries even behind the US, what kind of information do they have about their native bees that we don't have about ours? Oh, so much. All the way from, you know, the really basic taxonomy, for example, you know, in the US, there's something like four or four and a half thousand bee species that are named and known to be there. In Australia, we have 
about 16 or 1,700 species named, and then estimates are somewhere between two and 3,000 species, so like another 1,000 species remain to be named um, in Australia. And, and even for the species that we, we do have a name for, we probably know next to nothing about them, which of course is a huge challenge if you want to you know, see if they're useful for agriculture or see, see if they're threatened by any you know, anthropogenic processes. We just, we just really don't know. And, and in the US, there is so much more funding and so many more people working on native bees that we're just not going to catch up anytime soon. <laughs> Do you think there could be more resources allocated for this type of research? Have you ever had projects knocked back or research you haven't been able to do? Yeah, uh, for sure. So I, I've already done a short postdoc in the US and I wanted to come back to start working on RBs and especially with the varroa mite entering Australia. And then in the last what was it, couple of months, they've given up varroa eradication in New South Wales. And it sounds like the New South Wales DPI really did all that they could. But the the situation is really going to quickly change in Australia, I think, in terms of pollination services. So we have the most highest densities of European, fairly European honeybee hives in the world. And that's probably in large part because we don't have varroa mites. So, you know, uh, and we're probably going to stand to lose between 90 and 100% of those hives and all of that passive pollination services. So I have come back and I've applied for seven postdoctoral fellowships, I think, since since coming back. And, you know, I've gotten close and been shortlisted, but I haven't been able to get funded, which is a little bit disturbing considering, you know, what's happening with Varroa and, and that there's not really anyone working on Australian native bees so after trying to do your postdoctorate here, you've decided to go back to America to do it. What was behind that decision? Yeah, so as I said, I've tried very hard to do the work here because I care about a lot about the Australian bees and, and think that it's important. But also there's so much more research funding in the US for native bees. And, you know, I went there for six months, like I said, and did a postdoc and I got a good reputation. So... I've gotten quite a few job offers in the US, which some of which I've turned down to try and stay here. But it's just been long enough and I finally got an offer that's interesting enough to, to take up and go over. Flinders University adjunct professor Dr James Dory. Losing native bee academics to other research interests or jobs overseas is not new, according to Dr. Katja Hogendorn, senior researcher at the University of Adelaide School of Agriculture and Wine. She says more government funding is needed to help bee taxonomy and conservation. The flavour of research is all on crop pollination, but that is where all the funding goes. And documenting our unknown fauna and uh, getting a handle on what their foraging specialisations are and therefore how we can protect them what plants do we need, which ones are endangered, where are the problems for those unique native species. There is absolutely no funding for that. I am myself a specialist in uh, native bees in general. I've moved to crop pollination on purpose because there wasn't dry bread to be made out of studying 
these or taxonomy or ecology or conservation. So you've made that that decision out of necessity? Out of necessity in early 2000s. Now I am moving back to conservation because we need it. That we urgently need funding for it as well. There are no paid bee taxonomists in Australia, and no one, no one is paid to work on this. So you don't see any reason why someone like Dr. Dory needs to go overseas. They should be able to find work in Australia. There is plenty still to learn here. Yes, there is. In general, conservation is largely uh, not funded. It is largely the realm of volunteers. Pollination is such a very popular catchword. So we're doing things for bees. That's the idea. So bees are important pollinators. That's how every paper begins. But Australian native bees are on the whole not important pollinators of our crops because they didn't evolve with those crops. If we want to know about those native bees, then we shouldn't be putting all our eggs in the basket of crop pollination. And that's what we're doing at the moment. When it comes to protecting a bandicoot, nobody asks, well, what kind of important thing does this bandicoot do? It's just a native animal that's struggling and uh, needs our support. But when it comes to bees, we always have to say, oh, they're important pollinators. Uh, Some may not be important pollinators. Some are definitely important pollinators. A lot of orchids, for instance, rely on native bees for pollination. To protect those orchids, you need the right native species to support those native bees that do that. And that is, you know, those ecological things, there is, there is a largely no support for that. And it, it's, it's really worrying. That's Adelaide University Senior Researcher, Dr. Katja Hogendorn. She's speaking there with Elsie Adamo. If you'd like to read more about this and see some great photos of Katja and uh, James at work, you can hop on the ABC Rural website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. Lots of great stories that you can check out uh, from our team while you're on that website, uh, including a great write-up about the 150-year milestone for Australian manufacturing icon Furphy and Yes, the links to uh, where that term comes from in the Australian vernacular. It's celebrated 150 years at their home in Shepparton, so you can read that story right now if you'd like to hop on the website. Uh, we were talking about uh, non-alcoholic wines and the increase in uh, consumers wanting those or low-alcoholic uh, wine options. This one has come through on the text line. This one says non-alcoholic wine and other beverages substitute a lot of sugar for alcohol. Sugar is a much bigger health problem, says our texter. Uh, it's almost time for me to hand over to Sonia Feldoff. Hello. Hello, Selena. Now, here in Adelaide, um, we've been experiencing really incredible storm-like conditions. Uh, we're going to tell you where around the state those conditions are heading. Um, watch out Riverland in particular. Mm. Uh, but in the meantime, for the second time in 20 years, the whale from the brewery Christmas light oh, show has oh, been out. He's looking for the ocean, Selena. <laughs> he free. just wants to be free. <laughs> um, we will find out what's happened, whether we've got him back on deck. And in all of that lightning... You may well have been scratching your head about what you can and can't do in lightning these days. Can you still be on the phone, for instance, now that it's all NBN connected mostly? Mm. Um, What about showers? Someone wondered if they could be in a shower in a lightning storm. All of these sorts of things. We will bring you the answers to those today. Some good questions and you'll get some answers with Sonia Feldoff this afternoon. Thanks for your company. News time.
Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.